Chapter 5, Parts 5 and 6 of War in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. War in the Air by H. G. Wells. Chapter 5, Parts 5 and 6. Part 5. Steadily, the Vaterland soared, and the air fleet soared with her, and came round to head for New York. And the battle became a little thing far away, an incident before the breakfast. It dwindled to a string of dark shapes and one smoking yellow flare that presently became a mere indistinct smear upon the vast horizon and the bright new day, that was at last altogether lost to sight. So it was that Bert Smallways saw the first fight of the airship, and the last fight of those strangest things in the whole history of war, the ironclad battleships, which began their career with the floating batteries of the Emperor Napoleon III in the Crimean War, and lasted, with an enormous expenditure of human energy and resources, for seventy years. In that space of time, the world produced over 12,500 of these strange monsters in schools, in types, in series, each larger and heavier and more deadly than its predecessors. Each in its turn was hailed as the last birth of time. Most in their turn were sold for old iron. Only about five percent of them ever fought in a battle. Some foundered, some went ashore and broke up. Several rammed one another by accident and sank. The lives of countless men were spent in their service. The splendid genius, and patience of thousands of engineers and inventors, wealth and material beyond estimating, to their account we must put, stunted and starved lives on land, millions of children sent to toil unduly, innumerable opportunities of fine living, undeveloped and lost. Money had to be found for them at any cost. That was the law of a nation's existence during that strange time. Surely they were the weirdest, most destructive, and wasteful megatheria in the whole history of mechanical invention. And then cheap things of gas and basket-work made an end of them altogether, smiting out of the sky. Never before had Bert Smallways seen pure destruction, never had he realized the mischief and waste of war. His startled mind rose to the conception. This also is in life. Out of all this fierce torrent of sensation one impression rose and became cardinal the impression of the men of the Theodore Roosevelt who had struggled in the water after the explosion of the first bomb. Gah! he said at the memory. It might have been me and Grub. I suppose you kick about and get the water in your mouth. I don't suppose it lasts long. He became anxious to see how Kurt was affected by these things. Also, he perceived he was hungry. He hesitated towards the door of the cabin and peeped out into the passage. Down forward, near the gangway to the men's mess, stood a little group of six sailors looking at something that was hidden from him in a recess. One of them was in the light diver's costume Bert had already seen in the gas chamber turret, and he was moved to walk along and look at this person more closely and examine the helmet he carried under his arm but he forgot about the helmet when he got to the recess, because there he found lying on the floor the dead body of the boy who had been killed by a bullet from the Theodore Roosevelt. 
Bert had not observed that any bullets at all had reached the Vaterland, or, indeed, imagined himself under fire. He could not understand for a time what had killed the lad, and no one explained to him. The boy lay just as he had fallen and died, with his jacket torn and scorched, his shoulder-blade smashed and burst away from his body, and all the left side of his body ripped and rent. There was much blood. The sailor stood listening to the man with the helmet, who made explanations and pointed to the round bullet hole in the floor and the smash in the panel of the passage upon which the still vicious missile had spent the residue of its energy. All the faces were grave and earnest. They were the faces of sober, blonde, blue-eyed men accustomed to obedience and an orderly life, to whom this waste, wet, painful thing that had been a comrade came almost as strangely as it did to Bert. A peal of wild laughter sounded down the passage in the direction of the little gallery, and something spoke, almost shouted, in German in tones of exaltation. Other voices, at a lower, more respectful pitch, replied. "'Der Prinz!' said a voice, and all the men became stiffer and less natural. Down the passage appeared a group of figures, Lieutenant Kurt walking in front, carrying a packet of papers. He stopped point-blank when he saw the thing in the recess, and his ruddy face went white. "'So!' he said in surprise. The Prince was following him, talking over his shoulder to von Winterfeld and the Kapitan. "'Eh?' he said to Kurt, stopping in mid-sentence, and followed the gesture of Kurt's hand. He glared at the crumpled object in the recess, and seemed to think for a moment. He made a slight, careless gesture towards the boy's body, and turned to the Kapitan. "'Dispose of that!' he said in German, and passed on, finishing his sentence to von Winterfeld in the same cheerful tone in which it had begun. Part 6 The deep impression of helplessly drowning men that Bert had brought from the actual fight in the Atlantic mixed itself up inextricably with that of the lordly figure of Prince Karl Albert gesturing aside the dead body of the Waterland sailor. Hitherto, he had rather liked the idea of war as being a jolly, smashing, exciting affair, something like a bank holiday rag on a large scale, and on the whole agreeable and exhilarating. Now he knew it a little better. The next day there was added to his growing disillusionment a third ugly impression, trivial indeed to describe, a mere necessary everyday incident of a state of war, but very distressing to his urbanist imagination. One writes urbanist to express the distinctive gentleness of the period. It was quite peculiar to the crowded townsmen of that time, and different altogether from the normal experience of any preceding age, that they never saw anything killed, never encountered, save through the mitigating media of book or picture, the fact of lethal violence that underlies all life. Three times in his existence, and three times only, had Bert seen a dead human being, and he had never assisted at the killing of anything bigger than a new-born kitten. The incident that gave him his third shock was the execution of one of the men on the Adler for carrying a box of matches. The case was a flagrant one. The man had forgotten he had it upon him when coming aboard. Ample notice had been given to every one of the gravity of this offense, and notices appeared at numerous points all over the airships. 
The man's defense was that he had grown so used to the notices and had been so preoccupied with his work that he hadn't applied them to himself. He pleaded, in his defense, what is indeed in military affairs another serious crime, inadvertency. He was tried by his captain, and the sentence confirmed by wireless telegraphy by the prince, and it was decided to make his death an example to the whole fleet. The Germans, the prince declared, hadn't crossed the Atlantic to go wool-gathering, and, in order that this lesson in discipline and obedience might be visible to everyone, it was determined not to electrocute or drown, but hang the offender. Accordingly, the air fleet came clustering around the flagship like carp in a pond at feeding time. The Adler hung at the zenith immediately alongside the flagship. The whole crew of the Vaterland assembled upon the hanging gallery. The crews of the other airships manned the air chambers, that is to say, clambered up the outer netting to the upper sides. The officers appeared upon the machine-gun platforms. Bert thought it an altogether stupendous sight, looking down, as he was, upon the entire fleet. Far off below, two steamers on the ripple blue water, one British and the other flying the American flag, seemed the minutest objects, and marked the scale. They were immensely distant. Bert stood on the gallery, curious to see the execution, but uncomfortable, because that terrible blond prince was within a dozen feet of him, glaring terribly, with his arms folded and his heels together in military fashion. They hung the man from the Adler. They gave him sixty feet of rope, so that he should hang and dangle in the sight of all evildoers who might be hiding matches or contemplating any kindred disobedience. Bert saw the man standing, a living, reluctant man, no doubt scared and rebellious enough in his heart, but outwardly erect and obedient on the lower gallery of the Adler about a hundred yards away. Then they had thrust him overboard. Down he fell hands and feet extending, until, with a jerk, he was at the end of the rope. Then he ought to have died and swung edifyingly. But instead, a more terrible thing happened. His head came right off, and down the body went spinning to the sea. Feeble, grotesque, fantastic, with the head racing it in its fall. Ugh, said Bert, clutching the rail before him, and a sympathetic grunt came from several of the men beside him. So! said the prince, stiffer and sterner, glared for some seconds, then turned to the gangway up into the airship. For a long time Bert remained clinging to the railing of the gallery. He was almost physically sick with the horror of this trifling incident. He found it far more dreadful than the battle. He was indeed a very degenerate, latter-day civilized person. Late that afternoon, Kurt came into the cabin and found him curled up on his locker and looking very white and miserable. Kurt had also lost something of his pristine freshness. Seasick? he asked. No. We ought to reach New York this evening. There's a good breeze coming up under our tails. Then we shall see things. Bert did not answer. Kurt opened out folding chair and table and rustled for a time with the maps. Then he fell thinking darkly. He roused himself presently and looked at his companion. "'What's the matter?' he said. "'Nothing.' Kurt stared threateningly. "'What's the matter?' "'I saw them kill that chap. I saw that flying machine man hit the funnels of the big ironclad. 
I saw that dead chap in the passage. I seen too much smashing and killing lately. That's the matter. I don't like it. I didn't know war was this sort of thing. I'm a civilian. I don't like it. I don't like it, said Kurt. By Jove, no. I've read about war and all that, but when you see it, it's different, and I'm getting giddy. I'm getting giddy. I didn't mind a bit being up in that balloon at first, but all this looking down and floating over things and smashing up people, it's getting on my nerves. See? It'll have to get off again. Kurt thought, you're not the only one. The men are all getting strung up. The flying, that's just flying. Naturally, it makes one a little swimmy in the head at first. As for the killing, we've got to be blooded, that's all. We're tame, civilized men, and we've got to get blooded. I suppose there's not a dozen men on the ship who've really seen bloodshed. Nice, quiet, law-abiding Germans they've been so far. Here they are, in for it. They're a bit squeamy now, but you wait till they've got their hands in. He reflected. Everybody's getting a bit strung up, he said. He turned again to his maps. Bert sat crumpled up in the corner, apparently heedless of him. For some time, both kept silence. What did the prince want to go and ang that chap for? asked Bert suddenly. That was all right, said Kurt. That was all right. Quite right. Here were the orders, plain as the nose on your face, and here was that fool going about with matches. Gah, I shan't forget that bit in a hurry, said Bert irrelevantly. Kurt did not answer him. He was measuring their distance from New York and speculating. Wonder what the American aeroplanes are like, he said. Something like our Drachenflieger. We shall know by this time tomorrow. I wonder what we shall know. I wonder. Suppose, after all, they put up a fight. Rum sort of fight. He whistled softly and mused. Presently he fretted out of the cabin, and later Bert found him in the twilight upon the swinging platform, staring ahead and speculating about the things that might happen on the morrow. Clouds veiled the sea again, and the long straggling wedge of airships rising and falling as they flew seemed like a flock of strange new births in a chaos that had neither earth nor water but only mist and sky. End of chapter 5, parts 5 and 6. Recording by William Tomko.